This morning we will be looking particularly at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. But to get all of Paul's cohesive thought, we'll also be reading the text for next week, verses 4 through 7. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by very nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we ask this morning that you would reach us with your word, that you would lay our hearts bare, that you would open up our minds, that you would subdue our wills to yours, that we might follow after the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might seek his glory. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. There are times in our lives when we need a reality check. We think we know what is going on and we think we understand the reality of life. And someone has to point out to us that we have missed the boat. I had this happen to me many years ago. (coughs) Perhaps you've had a similar experience. I know that there are some, perhaps, who are going to move into this experience. It's the experience of being off for the first time and living by yourself at school. I went off to school and lived in my own place, my own room, where I didn't have my parents to tell me what to do. My mother didn't tell me when to clean my room or what to use or how to handle these things. And I was perfectly convinced that I lived in a spick-and-span pleasant place. I never would have thought twice about having guests into my room or having my parents there. Then there came the day when my mother visited. And I watched as she walked in the door and horror came over her face. And she said, how can you live in a place like this? 
And I said, what do you mean? It's fine. Fine? Do you see the mess all over the place? Do you see the clothes everywhere? Do you see that, that stuff in the corner that I don't even know what it is? Well, I think it's pretty clean, Mom. I can't imagine how you would ever let one of your friends ever come into this room, ever. Reality came with a cold dose of water. I realized I didn't really understand what I thought I did. And I had to take action based on it. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing for us today, spiritually. Because you see, I dare say that many of us, and most of the world, thinks that we are fine. That everything is spick and span in our lives. And that we're doing all the right things and have all the right movements. And the Apostle Paul comes in and very quickly and bluntly gives us a reality check. And so this morning, I would like us to ask and answer three questions this morning from our text. First, who are we? What are we by nature? Second, how are we enslaved? Because once we know who we are, then we have to look and see what keeps us enslaved. And then third, the most important question, if we understand who we are and we see what enslaves us, where are we going? Where is the end to which we are headed? Let's begin then by looking at this first question, who are we? And let's take a look at what the Bible says our nature is. Now, this is especially important because we have a sense of who we are and what our nature is just innately. We think we understand what's going on. This is why we need a reality check. We live in a modern climate of optimism about ourselves and our goodness. You've heard the sayings. We tell each other, you can be anything that you want to be. With hard work, anything is possible. And of course, the cliched end all cliches, why you could even grow up to be president. We're incredibly optimistic about our ability and who we are. But as we look out the landscape of the world, that's changing in our current generation, isn't it? You see, circumstances are harder than they were in the past. We have a generation today that for the first time in many generations, we are afraid will not be better off than the generation before it. And so because of this, conspiracy theories abound. Things that are keeping us down, that we're unaware of in the shadows. And at times we feel more like a pawn in the hands of people. But in reality... It comes back to the question, who are we? And there really only have been three answers to this question throughout all of human history in every society. The first answer to this question is that people are basically good. People want to do the right thing. And if there's a flaw in society or in people, if someone isn't doing the right thing, if things aren't happy and pleasant, well then, it's a matter of we just don't know enough. We haven't had it explained to us 
well enough how we are to do this. And so we've come to the point where we believe that education can fix every problem in society. As long as we spend more money on education and we get better teachers and we produce better books, we'll get better results. Because, of course, every day we are moving toward the best society we could ever have. Now, I like to call this, in a very technical term, Star Trek theology. You notice this if you've ever watched an episode of Star Trek. It's in the throwaway lines, they say things like, Yes, do you remember the time two centuries ago that we wiped out all mental illness? And do you remember how long ago we wiped out all famine and all war? It's as if the only way we can find a problem in the Star Trek universe is to go out into the universe to find a problem. Because we fixed everything. Because with enough time and enough technology, everything is great. The problem with this is, is that if that's true, why do things not seem to be getting better? Why are there massacres? Why are there wars constantly? Why are there man-made famines by people's greed? If things are always good and everyone is always good, why every single time I turn on my television or read a paper do I read about the horrible things people are doing to each other? That brings us to the second way of looking at who we are. And that's saying that we are sick. That there is a problem. You know, we do have a problem, especially a problem in society and a problem with God, but the situation is not hopeless because people are alive and able. And you know the saying, where there's life, there's hope. Hard work might be required, but if we all just band together, we can do it. We can build a better society. Now, the problem is that much of Christianity views the spiritual problem of man in this way. There's a problem with God. But if we could just turn ourselves around, if we can just try harder, repent more fervently, read more, do more, if we can just focus on what we are doing, then we can solve the problem. But the Apostle Paul is here to give both of these worldviews a reality check. Do you notice it? Paul is amazing to me. Because he doesn't mince any words, does he? I'm afraid that most modern preachers or modern men would take about 15 minutes to get up to the point where they would say the sentence that begins chapter 2. And Paul hits us straight between the eyes. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Paul brings us a much bleaker message. He says, you were dead. And the word there for dead is very vivid. It's the word we use for a corpse. You're not sick. You're not good. You are lifeless and dead. And Paul's statement is absolute. It's about everyone. In verse 1, he begins by talking to the Ephesian Gentiles. He says, you were dead. 
But then actually later in verse 3, he applies it to all of the Jews and himself. He said, we walked this way. Everyone in the world falls under this category. There is no one exempt. You see, what Paul is doing here is he is drawing a contrast. He has just been telling us, you recall, in chapter 1, about the power of God in Jesus Christ on behalf of his people. And now he tells us what we once were. And even his language is designed to draw attention to this. Paul would be marked off points for his grammar by his English teacher for this sentence. Because you see, there's no main verb in this sentence. He starts with a participle and he leaves us hanging. So much so that even as we end verse 3, we're waiting for verse 4 to come, aren't we? We want to know what the solution is to this problem. Paul wants us to see it, that we are dead. But what exactly does that mean? Because you may say to yourself, I've always been alive. Even before I knew the Lord Jesus Christ. Or perhaps you are sitting here this morning, you have come in, and you have not placed your faith and trust in Christ. You do not know about the forgiveness of sins. You have not laid it all at the cross of Calvary. And you say, I'm alive. I make decisions. I do things. But you see, Paul is not saying that we cannot act. Paul is saying that where life is found is with God. And if we are not with God, then we cannot have life. Because Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. This is what he says in John 10. You see, without, without Jesus, apart from God, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Paul gives us a reality check. But the nature of who we are, understanding the nature of who we are, then also begins to tell us a bit about our will. That is, if we were alive, then we would always be able to choose God. Now, at first, this is very encouraging, isn't it? Because we have the ability to be saved. The problem with this is, is it also means we don't really need God. We set our own agenda. We come to him on our own terms. But Paul is absolute here. We are dead. Without the life-giving grace of God, we will not turn to him. This is why Paul describes the work of God as he does in chapter 1. We may think we are alive, but we are not. Now, this is some heady theology here about us being dead in our sins and needing God. So let me see if I can give you an illustration to hang on to of how we can be dead and yet think we are alive and act. It comes from one of the most popular things in our culture today. Zombies. Everyone knows what a zombie's like, right? There's at least ten shows on television about zombies. There's books about zombies. They even make Jane Austen novels into zombies. Everyone knows what a zombie is. A zombie is something, one, that is dead but walks around like it's alive and serves no good purpose. 
yet it still has desires. Now, they're not the kind of desires that we find palatable, but zombies clearly have desires, don't they? And so that's kind of like what Paul is saying, what we are outside of Christ. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, and yet at the same time, we walk around thinking we are alive, thinking we have purpose, thinking we have meaning. You see, it's because we are dead because of our sins. Sin is at the root of our death, Paul says. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We were dead toward God, but alive toward wickedness. We were walking in our sins, wandering around like zombies, seeking to commit more and more wickedness, and saying to ourselves that this is life. You see, when we think about being dead in sin, sometimes we view this doctrine as the inability to do anything at all. And that's not, strictly speaking, true. Being dead in our sins means that we can choose what we judge to be best, but because we are dead in our sins, we always choose wrongly. We always choose sin and death, and we never choose God. We are unable. We are dead in our rebellion against God. We have transgressed His law, Paul says. And this deadness is not a theory. This deadness is something that we know and experience in our everyday lives. We see it in our neighborhoods. We see it in our nation. We see it throughout the world. That people are not basically good. That people are not striving for the best, but they are self-centered, caught in their sins, dead in their trespasses, hostile to God. So, that gets us to a second question. If we are dead, why are we dead and why do we stay dead? How are we enslaved to death? Paul describes this. In three ways. We looked at these three things previously as temptations that come to the believer. But they are also the sources of enslavement of those who are outside of Christ. We are enslaved to the world. We are enslaved to the devil. And we are enslaved to the flesh. Paul treats each of them one by one in the text. He says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, Following the course of this world. You see, there are results to our deadness. We spend our time living in sin. And Paul tells us that that was our way of life. And our sin does not come to us in a vacuum. We walk in our sin because it is natural to us. It is natural to us to walk in sin because everywhere we look around us, that is what we see. That is what the world is about and promotes. And that makes sense if everyone outside of Christ is dead. You see, Paul says we live following or according to the world. And by this, he means not just the planet, but he means the world system. Our behavior is under the influence of society's attitudes habits, and preferences. Think about how powerful a master 
the world is. Think about how much the world has changed in just the last 10 years. Changed in so many ways, in ways we never would have considered. And that is because the world is convincing everyone that they must think, they must act, they must speak a certain way. And it's, it's like a boulder going downhill. It seems impossible to resist. Because, let's face it, we don't like to stand out. We don't like to be the odd person out. We want to fit in. We want to be liked. We want to be in the know. Has there ever been a mother who has not used this phrase? Well, if all of your friends jumped off the bridge, would you jump off also? That's because we know the power and influence of others around us. That's the way the world works. But there's a second thing that we are enslaved to. Paul says we also follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul says we follow this prince, that is, the devil. The devil is in a place of authority over those who are spiritually dead. Now note, Paul is not saying that the devil is in charge of everything in the world. He is saying that the devil has spiritual power and influence over the world and especially those who are outside of Christ. Now, this makes sense because he is the author of rebellion. So he encourages rebellion in those who are dead in their sins. He was a murderer from the beginning. So he encourages those who are dead in their sins to murder in their hearts and in their lives. And Paul puts this interestingly. He says, the devil is the prince of the spirit. The word there for spirit is in the same place as power. You put of the in front of it. He is the prince of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The devil energizes the spiritually dead. He is over the spirit of evil that is at work in the disobedient. And this describes an evil supernatural activity in those who are dead in their sins. It, just as God was described as energizing or being at work in those who believe, in chapter 1 verse 11 and verse 20, so the devil is described as energizing and being at work those who are dead in their sins. But there's a third thing that Paul raises. Because we cannot blame everything on others. There is the world. There is the devil. But there is also an enslavement that comes from within us. Paul says that among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. You see, Paul says, we are also enslaved to the flesh. We have lived not for God, but for ourselves. And what drove us was the flesh. Now, what is the flesh? I can tell you that as the Bible uses that term, it doesn't mean skin. 
It doesn't even mean our physical bodies. What the flesh means, it is our fallen, sinful nature. It is that part of us which feeds on sin. Don't be confused and think that you can control the flesh apart from God. You see, even speaking about the flesh, we try and minimize its impact. We minimize its impact to fleshly sins like greed or gluttony or laziness. But Paul says it's about more than the body. He says that we have lived carrying out the desires of not only the body, but also the mind. The flesh makes us prideful. The flesh makes us envious of others. The flesh makes us hostile to the truth of God's word. You see, it's not something we naturally want to fight. When we think about being enslaved, or we think about sin, I think we might equate it often with pain, with bad things, with pain. But I actually think it's better to view sin and the flesh as false pleasure. It's the kind of pleasure that takes too long to figure out that it is dangerous. You see, we fall prey to the flesh and to sin because we think we are doing things that are good for us because apart from Jesus Christ, we have no ability to know our real purpose which is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We have no ability to know and understand the peace that comes from knowing Christ. And if this is true, then you can see how easy it is to be enslaved. Enslaved to the flesh and to the devil and to the world. Well, so where does this life then lead? Paul tells us that You were dead in your sins. You were enslaved to the world and the devil and your own flesh. Where does this lead? Paul doesn't paint a pretty picture, does he? He's realistic in telling us our problem. That we are in rebellion against God. That we are enslaved to sin and to evil. And that we are unable to help ourselves. We are dead. When was the last time you saw a dead man help himself? Move himself? We are completely unable. And the obvious answer then that Paul gives to us is that we are headed to God's wrath. He says that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now the world does not want you to take God's wrath seriously. It mocks it, it makes fun of it, because it doesn't want you to take sin seriously. The world has been on a millennial long PR campaign that there is nothing after death. It wants you to think that there is no eternal judgment, that there is no wrath of God, that there is no God, that you don't need to worry about anything. The only thing you should focus on is fitting in and having a good time now. The devil wants to hide God's wrath from you. 
After all, he doesn't want to face it himself. He is under the wrath of God. The lake of fire in hell is prepared for the devil in judgment. And he certainly doesn't want to think about that and he doesn't want you to think about it. The flesh wants you to forget about it and focus on yourself. Don't you have more important things to think about? Like how are you going to really have a good time this month? What are all the ways and things you can do? But God's wrath is real, Paul says. Now, the wrath of God does not mean some sort of sudden anger. The wrath of God is not like wrath that we often see in our families. You know what this looks like. Moms and dads, kids. It's when the kids not only step on, but tap dance on mom or dad's last nerve. And it explodes. Yelling and screaming, maybe throwing stuff, red faces, anger all over the place. You wonder if somebody's going to get killed in the house. And then a half an hour, an hour later, everything's calmed down. Right? We've come to our senses. We realize we shouldn't have screamed that much. We can go on. Let's, let's move forward. Right? And the kid's job in those situations is simply to ride out the screaming and the yelling until we get back to calm. Right? That's not what the wrath of God is like. You can't ride the wrath of God out. It's not about anger primarily. The word that we get wrath from here is a growing ripe, a building up. The wrath of God is indignation at wrongdoing with a focus at setting things right. And so Paul says that every single person outside of Jesus Christ is destined for wrath. And there is a present dimension to the wrath of God. The wrath of God abides on those who are dead in their sins, blinding them from the truth. There is a being given up to judgment that Paul describes in Romans 1, that most of the problems that we see in the world today and we are shocked by are not problems of morality. They are judgments of God upon those who are dead in their sins. God lets those who are dead in their sins, God lets those who have rebelled against Him drink the full cup of their sin. He leaves them to their own devices. And that is the scariest chapter in all of Scripture. You see, there is also a future dimension to God's wrath. That is, the judgment of God rests and abides upon all who are not in Christ Jesus. Well, the question then comes, if you, if we, if all the rest of people are all children of wrath, where is their hope? Paul's painted a very bleak picture for us, hasn't he? The hope is found in the tenses of the verbs in this passage. Do you see that? You were dead in verse 1. You once walked. We all once lived. 
We were by nature. You see, Paul is contrasting our present estate in Jesus Christ with who we were before Christ. Our hope is found in that something, no, someone has intervened in our deadness. This is the great declaration of verse 4, isn't it? Paul goes on and on about how horrible it is and how sin has gotten us and how we are dead and how we only seek wickedness of body and mind. And then verse 4 bursts forth like a bolt of lightning. But God, God intervenes. God is the solution to being dead in sin. You see, we are unable to help ourselves We are unable to do anything that we need. But God in Christ brings to us forgiveness and redemption. In Christ we are made alive and new again. You see, this is the gospel. The gospel is not your work. The gospel is not about how hard you believe. The gospel is not about how many tears you shed. The gospel is not about how quickly you turn around. The gospel is God's work. Do you feel hopeless talking about death? The good news is it doesn't depend on you. Jesus is alive. And he lives forevermore. And he not only promises life to those who believe, we see in our next passage that we'll look at next week, that He is the one who makes us alive. Paul wants you to have hope this morning. He wants you to believe. He wants you to no longer be an object of wrath, but to be an object of grace. To look to the Lord... To look to the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done and to claim Him as your own. To be made alive by the work of our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for not sparing us the description of who we are outside of Christ, but for driving us indeed, O Lord, to the Lord Jesus, for helping us to see and to know that we have no hope outside of Christ, but that in Christ we have every hope. We have life indeed. Lord, we thank you for the work that you have done in Jesus. And we pray this morning, Lord, that you would make that work real to us in our lives, that if there are any here this morning within the sound of my voice who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, I pray, O Lord, that you would make them alive by your grace, that you would grant them faith and repentance, that they would see the chains that the world and the devil and their flesh have put around them, and that you would break them free. And at the same time, O Lord, I ask this morning that you would Give a sense of freedom and life to all who confess that Jesus is Lord. That they would know sweetly that they have found forgiveness in Christ. That they will never again be enslaved, never again be dead in their trespasses and sins. But that they will live evermore because of what Jesus has done. 
This we ask in the name above all names, the name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.